Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, and just a very quick recap, if I may, to where we left off last week in verse 47. And what you're getting here is a saved Jew called Stephen giving a Bible study to a group of unsaved Jews. And it's quite miraculous, really, when you think about it, that what you're getting here, as I say, is a snapshot of Israel's 4,000-year history. If you go from Adam to Abraham, that's around 2,000 years, and from Abraham to Christ, another 2,000 years, and from Christ to the present, another 2,000 years. So a good 6,000 years. And as I say, it's nothing short of a miracle that the Jews are still with us to this day. In fact, if you were to go to Israel and get hold of an Israeli newspaper, it's written in Hebrew, biblical Hebrew. So it's a great miracle. And here Stephen, as I say, is giving a Bible study to a group of unsaved Jewish leaders, the high priest and co., and the hostility is building, and yet salvation starts with the Jews, uh, John chapter 4, and also from Romans 11, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And they are loved, beloved, the fathers, uh, because of the Jewish patriarchs. I think also from last week I failed to read verse 14, so I'll read it now if I may. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls, Seventy-five souls were summoned from part of Mesopotamia to go into Egypt. And a slight discrepancy has been mentioned by some Bible scholars as to this number 70, which I think it is back in Genesis. And here it's 75. Well, the quickest way to deal with that is to count the number of descendants that Joseph produced whilst in Egypt. And if you add them all up, you get to 75 also from verse 6 in Acts chapter 7, the word of God says, And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. That goes back to Genesis chapter 3, the two seeds. And uh, you find it very clearly when the Lord speaks to Adam and Eve, he'll put enmity between her seed and his seed, being the devil's. And of course, you know that's going to produce two seeds. One will be the Christ. And the other is going to be the Antichrist. And here this seed is found so clearly in Acts chapter 7. And also from Acts 7 verse 18, we also read, Another king arose which knew not Joseph. And that's an Antichrist king. And that's going to be the seed of the serpent. Not a literal seed. I don't think the devil produces literal seed. And I hope to explain my view on that during a future presentation. But he does produce a spiritual seed. And this king arising up, or this king rising up, is going to put the children of Israel into bondage for 400 years. Also from verse 40, the word of God says, Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what had become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Aaron was going to be the high priest, as this is a sad sense of depravity, this is a sad sense of apostasy. But I'm interested in this word gods, because the word gods, or God, back in the Old Testament, is nearly always Elohim. And Elohim can be gods, plural, or gods, singular. And I think what they're saying here is, Aaron, make us a god to go before us. And they made a calf, singular, in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, singular, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. So what I think they are saying to Aaron is, make us a god, Make us Elohim to go before us. Let us worship Elohim. And they make this calf 
and then worship the idol, so on and so forth. And yes, I know that it's God's lowercase here in our King James Bible, but I'm just of the opinion, my own private view, of course, don't quote me here, but my own private opinion is that it could just possibly be that this group of Jews, apostates, are wanting Aaron, their first high priest, to make him a god to go before them. And that's why you were told not to make an image of the Lord, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. You can't picture the Lord. In fact, if you even attempt to picture him, the chances are you're going to do a great disservice and you're going to desecrate the Lord God of the Bible. So just a few opening points to add to what we looked at last Lord's Day service. And uh, I want the Lord to, or I'll ask the Lord to bless the day's service, if I may, and ask him to bless the reading of his word today. And uh, let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 48 from Acts. Acts 7, verse 48, please. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house we build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? God is a spirit. 50. Hath not my hands made all these things, not a building? Verse 48 is our ninth Old Testament quotation. Verse 49 is our tenth Old Testament quotation. And like I said so many times over the past several weeks and months now, I suppose, that for me this does feel like a fifth gospel. And on top of that, Dr. Luke, a saved Jew, is quoting the Old Testament time after time because you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. And vice versa, of course. But it is a fact that God is a spirit, not a building. And therefore, if you are in a building, if you are in a church system and you think you are somehow super duper or cut above the rest or that you are something special or super holy, please refrain from that view because only God is holy, only his word is holy, and only the saved sinner is holy. And on top of that, don't limit the Lord to a building. You were told back in the Gospel of Matthew, where two or three meet in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is there in the midst of us. Look at verse 51, please. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. He's speaking to the Jews. And he says, on top of that, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. It's a good picture of free will. And our Calvinist friends will say, well, man doesn't have a free will. Yes, he does. It's found here very clearly. And on top of that, this is your 11th Old Testament quotation. And if you get a chance, please look at Jeremiah chapter 5 sometime and you will see that the Jews were in apostasy for many years, and that's why the Lord says they had eyes to see but couldn't see, and ears to hear but could not hear. 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which show before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. Which of the fathers, or which of your prophets, have not your fathers persecuted? That's a good question. And please picture this scene for just one moment, if you will. Stephen is a saved Jew. He's been plucked out of the first church of Jerusalem, if you don't mind me calling it that. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's gone out into his community to preach the gospel, which is what we should be doing today, if we're not already doing so. And he's just flying through their history of, what, 4,000 years? And he's saying, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Most of the prophets that went before them were persecuted and put to death. Most of their kings were also given a hard time, starting with Saul, going into Solomon and beyond. And they have slain them which show before the coming of the just one, in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. That was their ministry, to prepare Israel 
for the coming of the Messiah, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Also is going to picture Paul the Apostle, but known here as Saul in a few verses time. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. 53 one more time. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. If you go back to Genesis and read it very carefully, you find many angels appearing and preaching to the patriarchs. And that is building up to the great foundation of Israel. That's building up to the nation of Israel. That's building up to Israel receiving their Bill of Rights. And you read very clearly back in Genesis that adultery was outlawed. You read very clearly back in Genesis how incest was outlawed. And you read very clearly back in Genesis how murder was outlawed. And such acts were outlawed even before the law was given to the people of Israel. So that's how to understand this reference to angels being sent to give the law in anticipation for the law, which is found very clearly in Exodus chapter 20, verse 54, please. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. There's a picture of hell, gnashing, wailing, and weeping in hell. And one preacher was asked, what do you do if you arrive in hell with no teeth? And he said, don't worry, teeth will be provided. It's a pretty flippant statement to make, but he's absolutely right. They'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in hell. And they are absolutely cut to the heart. That's the power of preaching. If you preach the word of God correctly and sincerely, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or through the authority of the Holy Spirit, which comes from the new birth, of course. If you do it correctly and consistently, people are going to be infuriated by what they hear. And on top of that, as I say one last time, that does picture, for me, people burning in hell, people suffering in hell, weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth, cursing God, screaming at God, why am I here? I don't deserve to be here. I'm a good person. I went to church every Sunday. I tithed. I was a good Freemason, I was a good Hindu, I was a good Sikh, I was a good Catholic, I was a good Protestant, I was a good atheist, I never hurt anybody, but they die in their sins and they weep and wail and gnash with their teeth in hell. But the context here, without stretching it too much or spiritualizing it or adding an additional application to it, is in reference to the high priests listening, infuriated with Stephen's preaching, and they can't contain themselves. And it says in verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looking up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, that's the Holy Ghost, or perhaps the Shehinah glory, and Jesus, Son of God, standing on the right hand of God, God the Father, a clear picture of the Trinity, of course, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Why is he standing? Well, first of all, he's standing to receive Stephen, the first church martyr. And on top of that, he's standing in anticipation to come back to earth should the Jews receive him. And note, please, also that the Lord Jesus Christ is called Son of Man. And yet Paul, in all of his epistles, never once calls the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of Man, but always the Son of God. 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. That's the second time this term for feet has been found in Scripture. The first time the feet were found was back in chapter 5, in reference to death, in reference to Ananias and Sapphira, Lying to Peter and the Holy Ghost. And here 
in reference to Saul, later known as the Apostle Paul, and this man, Saul, going to be called the Apostle Paul, would transform the world. What Peter, John, and Andrew could never do, Peter could do, or Paul could do, I should say, in 13, maybe 14 epistles. So what those three men could not do, what those three men could never achieve, Paul could do in around 30 years. And you think to yourself, why did the Lord choose those apostles and not Paul until after the cross? Well, if you want a pope, if you want somebody to be marked out in the early church as something special, someone who's, cut, who's a cut above the rest, you're going to go for Paul, aren't you? In fact, just think about this for a moment, if you will. If you took out all of Paul's epistles, you'd have the four Gospels, you'd have Acts of the Apostles, you'd probably have First and Second Peter, you'd have James's epistle, you'd have John's three epistles, probably Jude and Revelation, that's it. And if you were a Gentile reading those writings, you're going to struggle to understand where you fit into the Lord's equation. Could you be saved by reading those writings? Absolutely. But you're going to miss the rapture. You're going to miss a clear picture of the second coming. You're going to miss how the Gentiles should live in the church age. You're going to really struggle. And that's why I think Paul was chosen to do a great work for the Lord. And on top of that, Paul had two natures. He was a Jew and a Roman. And that pictures his work to the Gentiles. He could reach out to the Gentiles. And yet at times, Peter also reached out to the Gentiles. In fact, the first Gentile that got saved in the book of Acts is going to be not Peter, not Paul, but Philip, interestingly. And we'll get to that during the next service. But here, Saul has been introduced into the picture. And Saul, or Saul, have you wish to pronounce his name, is going to be an eyewitness to the death of an innocent man. 59. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Did you get that? And they stoned Stephen, something which was illegal, by the way, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Who is Stephen praying to Jesus? And he calls him God. One more time. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is deity. I believe the Holy Spirit is deity. And I believe God the Father is deity. And here this man is moments from death. And he's calling upon God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we can pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can talk to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. Something which cults would cringe at the thought of doing. But that's okay. We are born again. We are Bible-believing Christians. We are bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. But here's Stephen, the first church martyr. And yes, I know that John was put to death by Herod back in the Gospels. He was beheaded. Something which is going to occur in the tribulation, of course. But technically speaking... John the Baptist was an old covenant martyr. We know that the new covenant wasn't initiated until the death of the testator, to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why I say most of the gospel content is Old Testament. And that's why I'm a semi-dispensationalist, because I think most of the content in the gospel is aimed at the Jews under the law. We can spiritualize it, of course. We can take great application from the gospel content. But for the most part, we need the Pauline epistles, and also keep this in mind, please, that Acts of the Apostles is not a doctrinal book. That's what's so amazing, that most of what you are reading in Acts of the Apostles is not, technically speaking anyway, doctrinal. It's historical. And that's why the Word of God has at least three applications, historical, doctrinal, and eschatological. And on top of that, you can spiritualize large parts of Scripture. But here, Stephen, as I say, is about to be stoned to death. And you ask yourself, what did this man do? What was his sin? Nothing at all. He got saved. This great saved Jew... Or somebody once said a complete Jew. A Jew is only complete when he's born again. And he's preaching to the high priest. 
and his associates, and he's giving them a crash course in their history. They must have been infuriated at that. These men are scholars. These men are PhDs, THDs, BAs, MAs, what have you, Holy Fathers, Doctor, Doctor, whatever. And here's this man, Stephen, plucked out of obscurity from the first church of Jerusalem, if I can call it that, from chapter 6, anointed by the Holy Spirit and sent out into the community to preach to the Jews, because the Jews are beloved for their father's sakes, and on top of that, salvations of the Jews. And you would think to yourself, they're going to receive this message, they're going to welcome this man into their arms, but no, not at all. 60. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He kneels down, no resistance whatsoever, and he says, Lord, in reference to Jesus Christ, lay not this sin to their charge. Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there's a picture of the Lord, of course, on the cross, praying out to his Father in agony. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here, Stephen, kneeling down, echoes his Lord's words, almost word for word. And if you go back to the Old Testament, if you look at the man Jeremiah, a very troubled man back in the Old Testament, a very godly man, of course, saved by an imputed righteousness, as Stephen was, anointed by the Holy Spirit, as Stephen was, and yet, on the one hand, Jeremiah is wanting God to smite his enemies, and yet here, Stephen is saying, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. So what a clear picture of two men, both saved, both living under two different covenants, two different dispensations, and yet having two different views or wanting two different outcomes to occur as a result of their persecution. Some people say, well, say people should be united, say people should be of the one mind, say people should never be uh, at odds, say people should always agree on every single point. Well, you're going to read later on in the book of Acts when Paul and Barnabas got into a disagreement and it was so contentious that they couldn't agree what to do in reference to John Mark. And they had to split and Paul went off with his crowd of people and Barnabas went off with his crowd of people. But here, Jeremiah, as I say, is quoted uh, and compared as far as I'm concerned to show the difference and the reality that two saved people can have two different outcomes or two different views, wanting two different uh, things to occur as a result of what they are experiencing. So that will conclude today's broadcast from verse 16. Like I said last time, chapter 6 was the shortest chapter thus far in the book of Acts, and chapter 7 has been the longest chapter thus far in the book of Acts. And my final recap, I suppose, through Acts chapter 7 in the remaining moments that I have before this broadcast will conclude will just be to uh, highlight some additional thoughts. I showed you last time how Joseph was a type of Christ. You saw that very clearly in verse 9. It says, but God was with him. And we are told back in Matthew 1 that his name would be called Jesus, being Emmanuel, which means God with us. And you know what Stephen's doing. He's going back to the beginning, really, of Israel's history. And he's quoting all the problems. He's showing all of the issues that the early church fathers were up against. The patriarchs, of course. So they went through great trials and tribulations. They were persecuted left, right and centre. And for the most part, they were misunderstood. And that's why Joseph was sold into slavery through envy. And that's why the, the religious leaders of the Lord's Day put him on the cross through envy. And that's why you were told back in the Old Testament how there's nothing new under the sun. Men never learn from history. Going from Joseph into Moses, another type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was a murderer. And there's no sign of repentance or confession 
And yet he was saved all along. People say, well, if you kill somebody, you've lost your salvation. No, you have not lost your salvation. And if you commit adultery, you've lost your salvation. No, you haven't lost your salvation. Or if you do this or if you do that, you've lost your salvation. No, you haven't lost your salvation. Moses, as I say, was a murderer. And he didn't repent. He didn't confess his sin. And yet the Lord chose him nevertheless. And on top of that, you find Moses going up to Mount Sinai. Back in the Old Testament, of course, it's pronounced as Mount Sinai, but here it's pronounced as Mount Sinai. And he sees an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. And at this time, he's about 80 years of age. And that angel of the Lord, as I showed you last time, is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was always the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll say this also, that I think when God appeared in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, it was the Lord Jesus Christ that appeared in the Garden of Eden. I don't think anyone has seen God the Father yet. But in the New Covenant, the angel of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. And I think we'll have chance or have some time to look at that next week. Moving on from Moses, going up to the burning bush and experiencing this great miracle. I showed you that irresistible grace from verse 40 was ruled out. In fact, I started today's broadcast looking at verse 40 in reference to God's idols, worshipping such in reference to Jehovah God. And also last time we looked at verse 43, the tabernacle of Moloch, the owl god, and the star of your god, Remphan, figures which he made to worship them, and I'll carry you away into Babylon, or beyond Babylon. There's your star of David, I think, and yet I won't be dogmatic and say this is the star of David. I know there's a great split amongst Bible believers as to whether or not this is the star of David, but this star is called the god Remphan, and this owl god is mentioned many times back in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices, human sacrifices, great cynicals occurring throughout the Old Testament, and that's why they were put into captivity. But I guess the overall theme from verses 48 down to 60 would be, first of all, not to limit the Lord to a building, not to dismiss free will, to acknowledge multiple apostate generations. And also from 57, it says how they cried out, with a loud voice and stop their ears. They're burying the words from Stephen. They hate the words from Stephen. They hate the truth from Stephen. And that's why you were told in Romans chapter 1. How men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's why we were told in John chapter 3. How men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because the deeds are evil. On top of that we were told from Ephesians chapter 4. How the Lord will give you over to a debased mind. And here this group of men who should have known better. Cry out with a loud voice almost like devil possession there, stopped their ears, covered their ears, and ran upon him, Stephen, with one accord. There's a mob rule, wanting to put this man to death, which, as I say, was illegal. And they cast him out of the city, like they did with the Lord Jesus Christ, and stoned him, much like what they do in the Middle East today. You get a load of Muslims coming across somebody who's been accused of a particular sin or crime, and they take it upon themselves to stone such people to death. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And this man is going to change the world. This man is going to write over half of the New Testament. This man is going to go to the third heaven. This man is going to give you the rapture, clearly, in Scripture, along with a very clear articulation of imputation, glorification, redemption, and propitiation. So if you take Paul's writings out of the New Testament, you're going to really struggle. And 59, one last time, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying... Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, I'm moments from death. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, I'm ready to be saved. 
I'm ready to be delivered to you. In fact, this man hadn't been saved very long, and yet he lived with the anticipation of being called home at a moment's notice. Lord Jesus, you are God, receive my spirit. Lord God, you are deity, receive my spirit. Lord God, you made the universe, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, you are everything, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, so they couldn't miss it. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Lord, don't hold this against them. Lord, if it's possible, excuse them for this. Lord, if it's possible, save them for attempting to put me to death. Save them for wanting to execute me. Lord, change their hearts and draw them unto you. What a great picture of mercy and redemption. What a great picture of love and mercy. No wanting death for these people. No calling for vengeance on these people, unlike Jeremiah, of course. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There's a picture of dying in the Lord. And Paul told us to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. So his body is going to sleep, not his soul. Don't fall into the heresy of soul sleep. His body will sleep, awaiting the rapture of the church. But his soul is saved. His spirit was already in heaven, according to Ephesians 1 and 2. And he falls asleep and goes straight to be with the Lord in heaven. The third heaven, of course. So don't make the mistake of thinking that if you were to die today, a saved man or woman, that you would sleep in anticipation for the rapture or the resurrection. No, your body may sleep, but your soul won't sleep. Your spirit will not sleep. Your spirit was regenerated when you got saved and your soul goes straight to be with the Lord upon death. And one last time, I think I must read this. Lord, in reference to Jesus Christ, not the Holy Spirit or God the Father, lay not this sin to their charge. If it's possible, Lord, overlook it. If it's possible, use this for good. You, you know, you think about Genesis chapter 50. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is a great piece of scripture to conclude this Lord's Day service. A martyr being put to death, not bitter, not angry, not indifferent, but completely happy and willing to be offered up for his Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Body sleeps, as I say, not his soul or his spirit. And I think I've covered all that I wanted to cover throughout today's study from Acts chapter 7. 60 verses offered to you in a very simplistic manner, nothing too uh, too deep, nothing too simplistic either, I hope, but enough to whet your appetite, enough to get you saved if you're not saved, and if you are saved, to edify you and encourage you. But please listen to me, it's going to cost you something to serve him. And we are living in a generation where it could be possible that we are going to be put to death for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And I hope if that happens to me, or if that happens to you, that I have the great peace and joy and mercy that Stephen had. I hope that I don't find myself angry or bitter or upset, as Jeremiah was, still saved of course, but I hope that I can mirror Stephen and the Lord Jesus Christ, who would say one last time, Father forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm a close today's service then, verse 60.